Hey, this is Brian with Mid-City Vineyard. Mid-City Vineyard is located in the heart of New Orleans, Louisiana. We worship on Saturday nights at 6 o'clock. If you want to learn a little bit more about us, check us out on Facebook, Mid-City Vineyard, Instagram, at Mid-City Vineyard, or online, midcityvineyard.org. Last week, we started a new series called Breathing Underwater, developing spiritual tools and practices for ultimately how to how to survive when the waters of life come crashing in on us. So this week, we entitled this The Power Paradox, Breathing Underwater Part 2, The Power Paradox, where Paul says that it is in my weakness that I am made strong through Christ. So let's head over to the podcast. Much peace to you. Here we go for tonight. Breathing Underwater. Part two, if you did not catch part one last week, I would highly encourage you to go catch the podcast on midcityvineyard.org. The idea behind this particular series over the next, this is going to last about 10 or 11 weeks, but it is this movement of cooperating with the Holy Spirit and learning and actually growing up in spiritual maturity in Christ. Because the truth is so many people you can, can be Christians for the longest time and yet never really grow up in Christ. Never really mature. And the last thing I want for my life personally and for the lives of any of those that, that I am engaged in is that we would, we would hit snags along the way and that we would get stuck to, so that when we've been a Christian for, for 20 years, we still act like we've only been a Christian for five years. That's literally, it'd be like meeting a 20-year-old who still acts like a five-year-old. You know, and we know in, 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 in that there's something wrong with that. And it can happen to us on our spiritual, spiritual journey also. Last week, we started with the poem by Carol Billick, which basically she says, I, I, I built my house on the, on the, on the, on the uh, shore and, and that my house was separated from the waters by the sand. And the waters and I, we were, we were acquaintances. We would give a glance to one another across the sand. But over time, the water began to, to come in closer and closer and closer. And, and suddenly, the sand fence between us disappeared. And she says, and I realized as the waters continued to rise, that I had some options here. As the waters were going to rise, I could run, I could flee, I could drown, I could die. But eventually I decided to give myself to the waters and I decided to transform my house into a coral castle and I learned to breathe underwater so that when real life begins to shake the foundations, when real life comes against us, when the things that bring resentment, when the things that, that bring conflict, when, when the real stuff, the disappointment the struggle comes against us. We can run away from it. We can ignore it. We can pretend like it doesn't happen. It isn't happening. We can build up resentment and become callous, or we can actually learn to breathe underwater. We can actually, we have the ability. Jesus has given it to us. There's a life for us in which we can grow up and learn how to navigate through these things. And so that's what we're spending our time on these next couple of weeks. We're basing it also, and we're bouncing back and forth between the steps in Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps, and there's going to be a lot of weaving in and out, and you'll understand why more and more and more as we process this over the next couple of weeks. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, Paul writes, The body of Christ 
is to be built up until we reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, becoming mature. So tonight, the power paradox. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this is what Paul writes. He says, now, listen, Christ said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. I delight in insult. I delight in hardship. I delight in persecution. I delight in difficulty. For when I am weak, then I am strong. <laughs> what? I mean, Paul, I delight. I delight. Now, I think there's a difference between delighting in difficulty and asking for difficulty. Okay, so I, 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 maybe we should go ahead. I don't know that Paul was often going around asking for difficulty, asking for insult. But have you ever noticed in your life that you don't actually probably have to ask? It seems to just find its way to you anyway. I mean, so eh, it's not a prayer we have to, to ask. It's not a thing we have to seek. But what Paul says is I've learned to take these things in stride and to actually delight in them because Paul realizes that I, I've come to the understanding that it is in my weakness, it is in my powerlessness over these things, that it's at that moment that I can experience more of the fullness of Christ in my life. In Alcoholics Anonymous, the first step, the first step before you can go any further, AA, step one, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And then you are in this room, and maybe you say, but I'm not an alcoholic. And so what does that mean to me? Well, it would look like this. We've come to admit that we are powerless over our pride or we have come to admit that we are powerless over our greed. Or we have come to admit that we are powerless over our need to receive our value from our job. Or we have come to admit that we are powerless over our addiction to being liked. Or we have come to admit that we are powerless over our addiction to consuming. Or we have come to admit that we are powerless over our need to be right. Or we are powerless over our need to be in control. Now there's just some examples, but there's a good chance that at least one of those things hits every single one of us. The problem is, for most people, we haven't come to admit that we're powerless over these things. And as long as we are in that place, we will never fully experience the presence of Christ in that place in our life. It's almost as if the way things work in God's reality are completely different 
than the way we've been taught things work in reality. It's as though the way of the divine, the way of the divine is a complete paradox. It's as though, in some ways, we, we follow and we serve a trickster god. Power is at its best in weakness. I told you last week, read the Gospels, look at where Jesus gravitates to. Look at the people Jesus gravitates towards. If someone's in pain, Jesus gravitates towards them. If someone is admitting sin and difficulty in their life, Jesus gravitates towards them. If someone is mentally ill, Jesus gravitates towards them. If someone is physically ill, Jesus gravitates towards them. If someone is willing to look at their life from a different perspective, Jesus gravitates towards them. Jesus says so often, let the one who has ears to hear, let them hear. And then he preaches. He preaches to hundreds of people, at times thousands of people. It says they fed the 5,000 that one day on the hill, and Jesus would preach. And then it says he would turn and he would walk away, and yet only some would follow. Because some had it all together. And they thought, those are nice words of a nice man, and they could go do their own thing and just still be self-sufficient. But Jesus said, listen, I didn't come for the healthy. The healthy don't need a doctor. The people who think they have it all together, the people who don't want to admit weakness or don't want to admit powerlessness, they they have it all together. And so there's not much I can do for those people. But for the ones who are ready, let them come and experience more of the life. Is it possible, Richard Rohr says this, is it possible that God has somehow hidden holiness and wholeness and maturing in the secret place where only the humble will find it. (laughs) That would be what we call the cosmic economy of grace. Grace is a gift. Grace is where God gives to us what we need when we need it. It was a Saturday morning. This was years and years ago. It was a Saturday morning. Uh, I had spent... Uh, probably, I've told you guys about these depressive states a number of times, and obviously it, it left, a, or it leaves, a huge mark on my life. But it was a Saturday morning I had spent maybe that week, maybe the last two weeks in bed, not getting up uh, for anything. Just it was, it, was that, it was that phase of my life where the depression was so deep, um, I was paralyzed. I was paralyzed by fear. I was paralyzed by anxiety. I was paralyzed by hopelessness. But I had committed to officiating this wedding (laughs) months earlier. And it turned out that the bride and the groom were expecting me there. So it's Saturday morning, I wake up, and I'm trying to figure out how am I going to drag myself out of bed. First off, I haven't been out of my pajamas in days. I've got, I haven't shaved in days. I've I've got to drag myself out. I've got to get myself ready. I've got to put on a suit. I've got to go and I've got to like, think that this is good and be happy. And not only that, but I'm stuck, not only officiating the wedding, but I'm stuck going to the after party, which is not just a reception, but it's a sit-down dinner with the bride and the groom. And I'm, I have to sit at the table with the bride's mother and father and the groom's mother and father. And I have to be a Christian. And I have to act like God is good. But I know that God is not in this moment. 
because I can't find God. I haven't been able to find God for months. And I, I, I get in the shower and I rattle off this prayer and it was like, God, here's the deal. Uh, I don't believe in you right now. But if you, imaginary you, don't show up, if you don't give some form of grace, if you don't uh, reveal yourself in my life in some way, uh, this whole thing is, is going gonna, gonna to be a disaster. Because I, I, I just, I'm not going to fake it. I can't fake it. I don't have the emotional capacity to even fake it. And so I drove. It was in Laplace. Of course it was in Laplace because now I have to drive for like ever in the day. And I'm driving and I'm driving and I'm driving and I'm crying and I'm weeping and I'm depressed. And I get there. I step out of my car and I walk across the parking lot and I step onto the soil. It was an outdoor wedding. I step onto the soil, the grass, and it's out by the lake. And the groom approaches me and I shake his hand. And I suddenly, without even knowing it, recognize that something is different. And I have an energy. I have an ability to engage him in conversation. I haven't engaged anyone in conversation in weeks. I engage him in conversation. And I see the bride and I engage her in conversation. I have the ability somehow I, 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 I perform the wedding. And I seem happy. And I sit at the dinner table and I engage people in conversation. And for that moment in time, I cannot explain it any other way, but for that moment in time, it was like there was this, this sacred bubble <laughs> that, it, that I, I found myself in where I was, I was, I was co a cognizant, uh, cognizant of what was happening. I was engaged in conversation. I knew that, 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 that something besides me was, was present. And it was good and it was beautiful. And I got back in my car and no sooner did I get back in my car did my whole world fall apart again. But what I noticed in that was that it was in the moment of the greatest, for me in that particular moment, in the greatest weakness, in the greatest sense of powerlessness, like there's nothing I can do, God. And yet God finds a way to say, okay, but I can. And I will. Now, my question was, well, why didn't that just keep going? <laughs> and it, but it didn't. And I, I don't know what to tell you. I'm, I'm still trying to figure these things out. But for that moment. But by the grace of God. Have you ever had a but by the grace of God moment? But by the grace of God. Have you ever had a, a, a throw up a Hail Mary moment? And I'm not talking like Hail Mary, full of grace. I'm not talking that Hail Mary. I'm talking like the football Hail Mary. Where it's the bottom of the fourth, you're losing by four. There's two seconds left on the clock. You're on your opponent's 40. There's nothing that the team can do, nothing. Your only chance is to get in a shotgun, send your receivers all to the end zone, and throw up a Hail Mary. That's kind of what it is by the grace of God. And it seems that the divine is the one who in this great mystery responds best to the empty, to the broken, to the humble, to those who are at the end of their rope. It's my experience. And yet again, what have we been taught? Here's what we've been taught. You're a self-made person. You can do this all on your own. Willpower. Kick it up a notch. Self-made, proud, strong. 
And what happens is self-made people try to manufacture an even stronger self by more willpower and more determination. Always looking, self-made people, always looking to maintain their place in charge and seeming control of their relationships, maybe this is you, of their jobs, of their place in life. What is it? Because self-made people will always manipulate and conjure up and uh, project and provoke and find ways. But what happens is we then bring this into our faith journey and we ultimately whittle down faith. We ultimately whittle down the gospel to just some moral issues and we always only pick the moral issues that we already have nailed. Right? Like we don't really harp on moral issues that we ourselves struggle with. We just find a couple of Christians, find a couple of moral issues that, you know, they themselves don't struggle with or whatever it might be, where we can be totally triumphant and totally superior. Have you ever noticed that Christians, it's mind-blowing to me, but some of the biggest Christian people, uh, public figures that fall, usually fall in the place that they held the highest moral ground. I mean, just when you think of Ted Haggard and, and, and Jimmy Schwaggart and, and the ones who, who held the highest moral ground on whatever it was. And that seems to be the thing where, boom, we fall short. Or we, we hold the highest moral ground on the places that don't demand any change in us. And this is where, and this is where I would go with this, this is where the ego comes into play. The ego The ego is the only thing that can get the job done, we think, in our lives. But the only thing that can ultimately help us deconstruct and get rid of the ego is powerlessness and weakness. It's like this catch-22. So when you read the scripture, maybe you'll do this some this week, whenever you read the word flesh, when Paul uses the word flesh, exchange it for the word ego. A better interpretation, actually, would be self-indulgence slash ego than flesh. I think flesh gets too hard. When we read the word flesh, we start thinking like your actual body, and that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's saying that, listen, your flesh slash your self-indulgence, your ego, wants to go this way. But the Spirit of Christ in you wants to go this way. Interchange those words, and you'll start to unpack a whole new understanding of what Paul is actually talking about. Paul and Jesus both point to the, the small self. They both point to, to saying that the ego has to go if you're going to experience more of the life of God. Jesus says in the, in the scripture that, that Newman read earlier, unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies and then sprouts forth new life, that's the only way you can experience this life. Unless the, the ego is planted, then we experience life. Through Christ. Paul would say it like this. In Galatians 5.19, he would say that the ego, the concerns of the ego are too small, they're too selfish. It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time, Paul says. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loin, 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 
loneliness, cutthroat, brutal temper, and impotence to love or be loved, divided homes, divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing, every, depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, and I could go on, Paul says. This isn't the first time I've warned you. If you use your freedom this way, if you allow your ego to drive you this way, you will not experience the fullness of life that Christ has for you. Paul says, Jesus says, the ego needs to die. But no one likes to die to who they think they are. Because letting go is not in anyone's program for happiness. (laughs) But all mature spirituality, in one sense or another, is about letting go. I would say to you, especially especially if you're one that's grown up in religion, one of, the, bless you, one of the most important things I might say is that somewhere along the way, to mature spiritually, some of the things might be unlearning some of the things that you learned along the way. Because if you were taught what it is to live according to a certain set of rules, then you've missed out on what the Spirit of God is doing. You've been taught that If you're a self-made person, even in religious settings, you miss out on what God might be doing. The spiritual life has more to do with subtraction than it does with addition. (laughs) The ego is that thing that must win. That must win the argument. The ego is that thing that if it is offended, it must offend back. The ego is that thing that must be in the driver's seat. The ego is that thing within you that will not allow you to apologize or ask for forgiveness. The ego is the one that drives the need to win, the need to gain, the need to get ahead. These things, this is the ego at play. It's not the life that Christ invites us into. And the ego has to die in order that the life of Christ might come to pass. And every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. So here's how this would work in our life. Upon entering AA, a person says, we perceive that only through the utter defeat are we able to make our steps towards liberation and strength. Our admission of personal powerlessness finally turns out to be the firm bedrock upon which the happy and purposeful life may be built. An alcoholic would say, Our admission is the first step in getting our lives back. Our admission is our first step to experiencing sobriety. Little good can come until we accept our weakness and all of its consequences until we humble ourselves. Well, what are the consequences of my weakness? What are the consequences of my addiction to being right all the time? 
you will find yourself alienated. You will find yourself alone. What are, what are the consequences of my addiction to, to, to having to win? I'm, I'm, just, I'm just competitive. You will run people off. You will offend in order to win. You will become unlikable. You will become unlovable. Not by your creator, don't worry. But you'll run yourself out of community. Well, what, 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 so what if I, if I don't want to forgive? You'll become bitter. It leads, these are, these are pathways, these are journeys in and of themselves. But it takes surrender. Few people, I love this, this comes out of the 12-step book. Few people will sincerely try to practice the AA program unless they've hit the bottom. For practicing AAs, Remaining 11 steps means the adoption of attitudes and actions that almost no alcoholic who is still drinking can dream of taking. So for our purposes here, if you're not an alcoholic, practicing following Jesus means the adoption of attitudes and actions that almost no person who is still living by self-will, self-indulgence, and ego can ever dream of taking. Because let's be honest, who wants to be rigorously honest and tolerant. But in Matthew 7, Jesus says, hey, look, stop picking up the speck out of your brother's eye and pick the plank out of your own. But that takes rigorous search of your own soul. Or in Philippians, Paul says, listen, be humble towards others, always considering them better than yourselves. That takes incredible tolerance. Or who wants to confess their faults to one another and make restitution for how they've wronged others? Matthew 5, Jesus says, listen, make peace quickly. Make peace quickly with your brother. James 5 says, confess your sins to each other so that you can experience healing. But who wants, unless it's the person who is pursuing maturity in Christ, unless it's the person who's pursuing life, who really wants to sit across the table from a brother or sister in Christ and say, I've come to the realization that I am incredibly prideful and I love to be right. And I think this is what God is working on in my life. I've come to the realization that pornography is an addiction and I want more of God's life. And I know I can't just live in my own little bubble and pretend like it's not a thing. I've come to the realization, and so on and so forth. Who really wants to turn to a higher power and practice prayer and meditation? In John 14, though, Jesus says, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Anyone who wants to come to God, you come through me. Come on, let's go. Who really wants to sacrifice time and energy to help others? But in Luke 10, Jesus tells us the story of the Good Samaritan says this is the one who's really experiencing the life. So in AA, the average alcoholic is a self-centered or is self-centered in the extreme and doesn't care for this prospect of doing these steps unless they have to do these things in order to stay alive. That's the that's the thing. Alcoholism will kill you physically. 
pride probably won't. So if you don't have that type of chemical addiction that could kill you physically, then you're going to have to do some different kind of digging. Because these other things will kill you. They'll steal your life right out from under you, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. The average Christian is self-centered to the extreme and doesn't care for this prospect of moving in growth in Christ unless we recognize that more life's available. And Jesus says, and I would conclude, John 10.10, your ego has come to steal from you, to kill you, to destroy your life, to rob from you. The thief, ego, religion, but I, I've come to give you life. I want you to walk in forgiveness. I want you to walk in a life where you don't have this ever-pressing need that you have to win every argument. I want you to live a life where you don't have anything to prove. You don't have anything to gain. You don't have anything to lose because you are secure in your value in Christ. And people can say things and you can take it in you can chew it up, you can apply what was true, and you can spit out what was false, and you can continue to live and to love, to grow in mercy and kindness and forgiveness. You can experience life free from holding grudges, free from resentment, free from unforgiveness, free from being driven by your ego. This is the life God has for us. The power paradox. It's in weakness that we really find strength. 